everyone welcome to talking research i am asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations This episode features an extensive discussion about sexual violence both in specific cases and more generally. If this is something that you find disturbing, please feel free to stop listening at any point. Today I'm talking to Dr. Manali Desai. Manali is a reader at the sociology department at the University of Cambridge and she's extensively looked at post-colonial India and also gendered violence in India among other things. In this conversation she brought along her years worth of expertise researching and teaching sociology and she also dissected various issues around gendered violence in India with a sociological lens now i didn't know what a sociological lens is so that was pretty much the first thing i asked her but before we dive in i'd like to apologize that the audio quality in certain places might lag and that was because we were recording over an internet call and sometimes the internet lets you down i found this conversation to be very illuminating i learned a lot so i hope you can enjoy this conversation still and yeah let's dive in hi manali thank you for joining us at talking research it's so lovely to have you here and to get started do you want to tell us about yourself Sure. Um well, I am a reader in the Department of Sociology at the University of Cambridge and my research interests cover quite a lot of different areas. Um I'm a historical sociologist um and I've done a lot of work on India's transformation through the colonial late colonial period and into the contemporary um kind of rise of Hindu nationalism. and the kind of transformations of state and society in India and in that context i've also wanting to i've been wanting to join up my understanding of india's uh, modern uh, transformation the current political situation with an analysis to gender the analysis of this transformation um through the lens of violence Um so I'm currently engaged in a project on gendered violence in urban India and and comparing it to uh this sort of similar sort of transformation that is happening in South Africa um and really looking at the phenomenon of gendered violence through that lens. Uh, before we get into your research I want to ask you a really basic you know very simple elementary question mm-hmm. and that's just how do we analyze a problem in the academia of sociology basically how do we conduct a sociological analysis um sociology has the um kind of i think one of the things that's quite unique about sociology as a discipline is that it uh, consolidates the insights of quite a number of different fields including anthropology and history and politics but really focuses very much on core concepts around the question of transformation why do societies undergo rapid transformation at particular periods of time um how is that connected to the underlying kind of inequalities and hierarchies and forms of community and um kind of groupness you know that exists in any given society so in sociology we are really interested in looking at kind of collectivities you know how are collectivities mm-hmm. formed 
um, how are they connected to each other. Sociology is a discipline that's very, very centered on social relations, you know, how are people mm-hmm. connected to each other through what forms of community, but also through what forms of hierarchy and inequality. So as a discipline is singularly concerned with the way in which societies are structured and the patterns of these structuring and why these carry on so, uh, you know, over such long periods of time. So gender is one of those uh, kind of forms of structuring. You know, the gender relations have changed a lot over time, but still we see deep patterns of inequality and hierarchy and power. You know, so sociology as a discipline is also very concerned with power. Hmm. And building up on that, your work has looked at how, you know, sexual violence and gendered violence specifically in India, how mm. that interacts with structures and mm. how institutions uh, in India perpetuate it or uh, aid it. So mm. can you tell me about, you know, a bit about that, how you said that the meaning of uh, the meaning of gendered violence or the paradox of rape can be mm. grasped through an analysis of uh, specific social, mm. cultural and political environments in India. And this is, mm. I'm quoting you. Sure. I mean, I am drawing a little bit on the analysis of Joanna Book in her uh, book, Rape, in which she mm. made a very, very interesting observation, which is that rape is something that occurs in almost every modern society. In fact, through time, um, rape is one of the means that has been used to subjugate women, to maintain Mm. patriarchal control, uh, and to silence women who appear to be transgressing gendered norms, patriarchal norms, you know. But at the Mm. same time, the forms, the situations, the meanings of rape, these vary from society to society, and they reflect very much the particularities of those societies. So, for example, the existence of rape within the family, within extended family and kinship networks, and the degree to which these forms of rape are kind of um, rationalized and justified, and the meanings associated with these vary from society to society. You know, they're more accepted in some, less accepted in others. Um, mm. So there's this, the, also the definition of sexual, um, kind of the sexual act itself as rape itself varies from um, society to society. In some um, societies, um, for example, the marital rape is not actually recognized as, as rape, yeah. is recognized mm-hmm. as the right of the, the, the husband, you know, the, so yeah. there's, there's, there's variation in meaning that we need to be very sensitive to, um, so that we don't end up with blanket analyses that derive mm-hmm. from basic, you know, factors and really look at the complexities and the shifts in meaning of rape and the shifts in the ways in which rape is justified um, and and to be very attentive to that at the same time. And in your work, you've looked at the need for understanding uh, the institutional conditions that normalize this violence in India. Mm. So what can these institutional conditions be? And um, mm. you've told us about why their analysis is needed. So what, what, what can these conditions be? Well, definitely. I mean, if you really look at uh, the law, for example, you know, and if you actually analyze the 
the law uh, going back to the colonial period, you know, mm-hmm. the ways in which um, rape was understood as something that originated with a particular type of, within a particular type of culture. So there were there was this argument that, you know, in India, um, men have a particularly kind of um, a, a certain kind of sexual appetite and there are cultural reasons why men uh, might rape. And there's also the attribute of um, shame around rape, which is seen as being something that, um, you know, enables this this phenomenon to to occur within the Indian context. And so there's a long history around the ways in which the law um, refused, in fact, to recognize women as capable of speaking about their own um, kind of sexual uh, violation. And um, so we we can't analyze rape as simply something that happens uh, in an isolated context. You know, rape is something that's enabled within institutional conditions. And the law is just one of them. Obviously, there's also the ways in which the state not only um, recognizes some forms of sexual violence as rape and not others, but also the ways in which the state itself is implicated. So it's very important to look at the ways in which, say, for example, rape is normalized under conditions of occupation in situations that range from Kashmir to Assam, you know, that the armed forces and the police are, when they rape, that is just seen as just something that they do, that men do under conditions of duress. And it's Mm. looked away, they have impunity. Most of these go undocumented even, and definitely unsanctioned. Right. So the institutions, if you don't look at the institutions, we really miss, I think, a crucial aspect of what it is that really interests me around and I think should be uh, analyzed around the phenomenon of sexual violence, around the phenomenon of rape, which is the degree to which in any given time, in any given society, rape is sanctioned, it's justified, and people in power look the other way when this is happening. You know, this is what enables rape to happen. This is what enables it to be justified and perpetuated. So without the institution, so the institutional conditions are, in fact, the enabling conditions, I would argue, for rape. Mm. And not, it doesn't lie in, say, the masculine um, you know, the mind or in sexual appetite or lack of restraint or, you know, this or that singular factor, you know. Um, in other places, for example, people argue that, you know, rape is a product of um, the culture of poverty or, you know, singular factors of that kind. But actually, I think that misses the point. It it attributes it to a single factor when really there is a kind of institutional setup that makes rape justifiable, that makes it possible, and that Mm -hmm. um, sanctions it, you know, and in those conditions, I mean, one of the, for example, you know, one of the factors we're looking at in the case of South Africa, and I think one could even look at this in the case of India, is that in South Africa, powerful men, men in power, have all the way up to say Jacob Zuma have been accused of rape. They use rape as a means of asserting their masculine symbolic power in society and they justify it, you see. And so what happens when you have that happening is that you have an environment in which this is being sanctioned openly, you know, Mm -hmm. as a way of silencing women or as a way of enjoying women, as a form of enjoyment. 
um, in India. I think, you know, the way in which, say, um, women are raped, Muslim women are raped in the context of communal mm-hmm. violence, for example, also says that, you know, some women are inherently rapeable. They need to be taught a lesson. You know, and mm-hmm. rape is a legitimate way of subjugating another community, of teaching the men a lesson, teaching the women a lesson. So I think, you know, we we really need to look at the institution from multiple facets, what people in power are doing, but also what institutional mechanisms, the law, the everyday operations of the police, the courts, you know, there's so many, there's so much interesting work done on courts that make it, um, you know, that sort of specify in a way, you know, um, who can be believed and who can't be believed, who rapes and who doesn't rape, who should be put away and who shouldn't, who has the right to rape and who doesn't. You know, these sorts of things are decided through these mechanisms. Yeah, and it sounds like if we, I mean, tell me what you think of this, right? But if we uh, analyze this further and if we look at, for example, a family, a family structure and the institution of a family, even in that institution, sexual violence or gender violence is normalized things like marital mm-hmm. rape for example as you said um sure. yeah uh, i was just going to say what positions you've talked about how some women are considered to be inherently rapeable or who is mm-hmm. the victim who gets uh, empathy i mean there's it's, it's not it's not something that's uniform for everyone who goes through this so what position do women's bodies occupy within um india's system of caste kinship and state domination again in your words <laughs> yeah sure i mean i think that's the way you know this is the sort of i guess my sociological lens on this phenomenon which is to say that you know it's not just that women symbolically op- occupy a lower place in the caste system or in the context of state domination but their bodies are implicated as well you know materially as the bearers of, say, caste oppression. And there's so much really interesting work, for example, that's been done on the rape of Dalit girls and Dalit women. You know, I'm going, I'm thinking of Mahashweta Devi, uh, Gayatri mm. Spivak's, uh, uh, you know, discussion of, of, of um, you know, of Mahashweta Devi's work and really looking at sort of historically how Dalit women, for example, their bodies have been seen as, a, have been kind of treated as a site of both caste and gender violence, you know. And that is why, in a sense, you know, while I'm, I've said, you know, women's bodies occupy a particular position within these systems of caste and kinship and state domination, at the same time, you know, these forms of domination layer different women's bodily experiences in very different ways. So we can't mm-hmm. even talk about rape as some kind of universal phenomenon mm-hmm. or sexual violence as some kind of universal phenomenon that all women, um, you know, um, experience in the same way because the they don't, you know, and mm-hmm. I think they don't, they're also not believed in the same way. They're not treated in the same way after the um, sexual violence has occurred. So there is a kind of overall systemic violence that women in different positions with regard to the state and caste and class 
experience, which has to be um, very much, I think, centered in the analysis. And this kind of goes back to the first point about the analysis of specific social, cultural, and political environments, is that we, we really need to break down this big category of sexual violence, of rape, of gendered violence, and see it as a as a set, you know, as a, as something that occurs in very specific ways for, for specific groups of women. And that gives us a lens also on other systems of domination at the same time, you know. So the mm-hmm. rape of Muslim women in the context of communal violence is also at the same time about the assertion of a kind of Hindu supremacy, of Hindu domination, as mm-hmm. much as it is an act of uh, grievous sexual violence. And you've looked at Hindu nationalism and you've also looked at uh, violence against women in conflict zones extensively. Can you elaborate mm. a bit on that, please? Sure. I mean, I, I think, obviously, you know, I myself, my family is from Gujarat. Uh, my origins, you know, are Gujarati. And I have visited Gujarat many times since 2002. Um, and it is, of course, not the first time that women have been violated in the context of conflict Zones, and I think we often um, rightly focused on Gujarat, but we really uh, have missed, I think, the longer-standing violence against women in Kashmir. And I think that's very, very important right now in the context of what's yeah. happening in Kashmir as well. You know, as it is in the context of um, the um, armed forces special powers act in uh, in Assam and the northeastern. Um, territories, that women uh, in these contexts, you know, there's everyday occupation, military occupation. Um, In Gujarat, it wasn't so much military occupation, obviously, but it was a kind of uh, assault on, a violent assault on Muslims, telling them they needed to evacuate their homes, move away. Um, These forms of violence have really been directed at men in particular ways, you know, closing mm-hmm. down, burning shops, burning homes, driving them out of their homes in the context of Kashmir, imprisonment, torture, um, you know, and the kind of arbitrary use of power. And in that context, you know, the targeting of women specifically to, to shame and violate their bodies, often in front of men, in front of children, is a sort of um, like this final act of of complete desecration. You know, it's really designed to break communities. It's designed to break their confidence, their their whatever forms of community and empowerment they've found in the context of occupation or deprivation to really break it down, to make it impossible for them to come back again and and survive and thrive. Um, we've seen this in Bosnia, Herzegovina. We've seen this millions of times. This mm. is a weapon of war in, in many parts of the world, right? So absolutely, you know, and I'm, I am still, and I continue to be kind of partly horrified, but also intrigued by how much, how often this is used and how and what its aims are to really try to kind of understand how and why these forms of violence can pro- proliferate, you know, how is mm. it possible for them to proliferate? Who makes it possible? Yeah. So, yes, I think that, you know, what I saw in the context of um, conflict zones in India is the post hoc justification that I find very disturbing. You know, it isn't as if we say as a society, you know, this went too far and never again. In fact, it, it just gets worse. Mm-hmm. You know, you see 
it actually this gets to be justified. You know, we saw this in the Shiv Sena attacks in Mumbai. You know, over and over, there's a kind of gloating and a sort of, in fact, one of the things that I've suggested more recently is that we are in a way almost moving from these big spectacles of violence, which will, will probably occur again, but really, it's not so much these spectacles anymore. I think it's the everyday embedding yeah. of violent images, you know, pornography, violent pornography, um, the use of violent memes, you know, all of these things that are designed to kind of promote, proliferate a kind of everyday forms of violence that are something I would really like to look at in future work. Uh, this this reminds me of that case last year, uh, the rape of the eight-year-old girl in uh, Jammu and Kashmir and done by people who belong to the ruling party, BJP. And mm. um, it was very much done to teach her family a lesson because she belonged to a Muslim family. Yeah, yeah. and just the responses to that as well was mm. just staggering i mean yeah it's i think that part is something that really intrigues me you know there's there's a there's a time when i think people would not have felt so free to speak in favor of sexual violence um where now it's openly acceptable to say well you know i mean i've heard people say it you know openly well they deserved it you know so this idea of normalizing that isn't, it's not just about this individual or that individual. And fair enough, you know, we can talk about these individuals, but we need to think about how is it possible that this proliferates and, and becomes uh, normalized? You know, and I had a colleague once telling me quite recently that, you know, you can purchase these particular horrific uh, videos of violence uh, being committed or rapes and sexual violence. You can just go and ask to get a SIM card with these or, you know, whatever these whatsapp um sort yes. of images that are circulating but you also go and buy purchase these things that for your enjoyment you know so that we're moving from the spectacle of violence to the uh you know the the one-off um kind of things to kind of mm-hmm. everyday enjoyment and consumption of violence and that's what i'm really interested to know more about yeah and you've looked at the uh, in in your studies you found that violence against women is still primarily rural Hmm. how do we know Hmm. that and um how does that manifest i think what i was saying in that particular article not so much that it's necessarily that there are more there is more violence against women in rural areas but that well, first of all, in India, India is still more rural than urban. Yeah. I think that that's one basic point. But also that at the time, you know, this is after the rape in 2012 uh, in in Delhi, you know, um, nearby, um, and the, the 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 attention I think of the media and of most commentators was focused on urban uh, kind of gang rape and urban violence, which is of course growing and India is becoming more urbanized. And so these forms of violence are becoming more coming into the limelight, but they're also growing. But I also wanted to draw attention there to the fact that still India remains primarily rural, that a lot of rape happens and does not get documented. And that actually when you say how do we know that, I think that's a very good question because one of the paradoxes about rape is also the fact that actually we, because of the very fact of underreporting of the fact that so many acts of rape are not counted as rape or understood as rape, 
Yeah. Uh, because of the sanctions on reporting, we actually don't know the true extent of it. And relying on official statistics or surveys is really shaky. We don't know. Um, and one of the things my project is trying to do, actually, is trying to get underneath those statistics to kind of really immersing ourselves in communities to understand a bit more about these hidden forms of rape. One of those, for example, is is in middle class India. You know, we just don't know enough about rape in middle class India. Uh, we know we, you know, the media attention always gets directed to particular things and then our, all of our attention goes there. But actually, we just don't know. So I think that was really just to contextualize that, um, that sentence. Mm, definitely. And when you say that media attention goes towards certain kinds of cases, do you think mm. there's um, the media gaze is focused more towards um, skewed more towards this perception that you know savage men raping vulnerable women like that sort of uh, uh, that sort of image or yeah I mean I think definitely you know again after 2012 you know the, there's so much attention to sort of these migrant men from yeah. UP Bihar you know um, and that that imagery of these kind of un uh, you know, these men who have sort of unattached, you know, without younger men, with, with no family, clear family connection, you know, with poor social mores and morals and, you know, things like that. But actually, this is partly why I think we have to be very wary of imagery, you know, imagery, whether it's in film or in the media or photography or whatever, is always very particular and very unique. And it's it's a particular gaze upon particular people. And when we actually really look at the historical record, for example, the use of rape by upper caste men in rural India, yeah. uh, we, we never really see see them as our kind of, you know, our exemplary, you know, or the, 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 the you know, yeah. the, the type of rapist that we look at, you know, likewise in middle class India, you know, and I think the, the, the Me Too movement has begun to draw a lot more attention to these men, you know, in, in the corporate world, in the entertainment mm-hmm. world, you know, men who have actually wielded economic power with sexual, you know, through sexual assault. Um, these kinds of connections are only now beginning to be made where we can actually fill our picture in a little bit more with information that's really coming from the women themselves because nobody else is ever going to give us those stories. And it's women who, when they begin to tell these stories, we begin to understand so much more. So yes, I mean, that's right. I think that the media gaze is, it's sensationalist. It's it's a very middle-class gaze itself you know, and mm. aimed at selling, you know, newspapers and stories. And we just don't really, that's not accurate most of the time. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's interesting to point out that middle class in India is different from middle class in, say, the UK or the US where mm. Indian middle class isn't necessarily wealthy, but they mm-hmm. have enough income or resources to get by relatively comfortably, but they don't mm-hmm. have enough disposable resources, right? Mm. That's right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, again, when sometimes you do read stories and whatever I do know about middle class uh, constraints on women, you know, the fact that actually women, more women are entering the workplace and getting an education, becoming more empowered. But also, I think there are those mechanisms that seek to hold women back that are very strong and very well established in the middle Mm. class. They're often cloaked around issues of shame or middle class morality and 
things of that sort. But the, but wherever you have these forms of patriarchal control, you can be pretty sure that violence is not far behind. You know, I don't want to suggest that it's happening in every household and so forth. It's, but it's just to be, uh, you know, to have our kind of sociological lens attuned to these hidden forms yeah. of violence, to the, the yeah. ways in which actually particular classes and castes can cloak uh, what's happening with the appearance of uh, kind of overt morality and good customs. And yeah. um, you've also mentioned in this article, the one that I'm quoting from, and I'll put a link to that um, in the description. You've mentioned that domestic abuse is, you know, it's something that's considered to be a very good indicator of uh, domestic abuse figures, is it, are a good indicator of understanding yeah. how widespread mm. gendered violence can be. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, you know, and in fact, that has connected up a little bit with a, 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 a sort of related point to the one before this which is, you know, the, the, for example, the ways in which the dowry system mm. operates as a means to hold women back, you know, and to, to because sometimes actually sexual violence is something that is used against women in the context of other forms of abuse, like dowry-based, mm. you know, abuse. So the interconnections between different forms of control and abuse are really important to investigate, you know, because sexual violence will operate and happen in a vacuum, particularly within yeah. the family. It's connected to other issues of control, of, you know, perceived transgression, of women not listening, not obeying, and so forth. And the, you know, the... Con the context I'm familiar with, even anecdotally from connections I have with other middle class families, I've seen that the forms of abuse can relate can range from financial uh, abuse, you know, not giving women any resources, holding, you know, keeping her earnings from her, but also withholding food, withholding crucial resources from women. Yeah. This happens not, you know, contrary to the way that people think it's happening in working class, a poor yeah. family, actually very much operating in middle class families, you yeah. know. So this alerts me to this hidden problem, I think, that we need to look at, you know, the, 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 the hidden violence. And um, one of the things that I think of when you say hidden violence is uh, sex selection. When women are pregnant, they're made to yeah. undergo a sex to choose that if the fetus is a male fetus, then um, we go ahead with it. And if not, then fetus is aborted. And uh, that is illegal in India right now. I mean, you know, it's been illegal for a while, but that's I don't think that stops it from happening, right? Not um, at all. Yeah, and about that, you've mentioned, and this is something I found really interesting, that uh, the impact of sex selection is that mm -hmm. some researchers have argued that males in pair branch societies they will and again mm. quoting you seek satisfaction through violence and vice and how you know increased aggression to capture resources in a competitive environment will become the norm yeah i mean it's really just to think about you know the cultural impact of having a predominantly male society you know and what is it that um will happen now i mean i i would caution that you know we don't want to turn this into a kind of men are inherently aggressive and women are inherently yeah. I mean, because this this can lead to a form of essentialism but um 
But I'm here I'm drawing actually on what other researchers have looked at in the context, not just of India, but China, where the sex ratio is, is really skewed, you know, countries in which there is a skewedness around this, which is uh, a range of things where men have to go further afield in search of brides, you know, because still a marriage is considered to be a desirable outcome for, for us. So if we live in a society in which, you know, you do have to get married if you want to have a legitimate, you know, identity. Um, so men look, you know, the, the competition for women, young women, becomes more and more fierce. Uh, mm. Men have to look for the appeal for these these things. But also there are researchers who have argued this about increased uh, aggression and increased violence. I mean, I, I think that it's it's intriguing. I think we would have to look more carefully at whether this is being driven primarily by the skewedness of the sex ratio or whether there are other factors, you know, for example, economic factors as well that are playing into this. The fact is, of course, that, you know, this is not a healthy society. This A healthy society is not one in which women are undesirable. Um, the, a healthy society is one in which it matters, does not matter what is the sex of the, the unborn child. And that, that itself is going to alert us to the type of values that one is going to be, um, kind of placing the value that you place on a male versus a female. You know, so for me, the aggression is probably an outcome of, uh, a skewed values, you know, skewed values of the valuation that is placed on, a, a boy versus a girl. And that, I think, is connected to other forms of violence and abuse as well. Because if a girl is undesirable before she's even born, then there is no way that that is going to improve after yeah. she's born. When you think about the in, you know, skewedness of resources, you know, girls are given less food, less milk, less nourishment, less education, fewer opportunities, probably much greater levels of emotional and psychological neglect then we can begin to see that actually we're, you know, we're painting a picture here of a, of, you know, yeah, a, a form of aggression really that, that, that really disturbs me. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. And moving on to uh, where we are and the rise of consumerism and neoliberalism. Mm. And you've yeah. talked about how that has affected gender violence in India. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, you know, for many years have been visiting Gurgaon, where, mm. which is really the kind of uh, prime uh, example of yeah. unbridled consumerism, you know, all these malls and yeah. massive. massive malls. And what fascinate, fascinates me are two things. One is the huge rise in kind of drinking uh, spaces. So mm. roadside bars and liquor and whiskey, you know, and, and the adverts that go with that. So loads of adverts for specific things, especially aimed at women. I mean, sorry, at men, you know, clothing, whiskey. I mean, these things kind of go together, you know, big watch, big chest. <laughs> the whole idea of what is what is your aspiration? You know, what is it to be an attractive, a successful male or a successful male? To be a successful male, you have to be attractive in a particular way, wearing particular yeah. kinds of clothes, buying a gold watch, drinking whiskey, etc. And I mean, to me, you know, wandering around in those malls and feeling often as a woman quite vulnerable because these are spaces also that are, you know, kind of, entertainment zones for large groups of men who are wandering around and 
looking at women and, you know, there's a lot of harassment that is going on, you know, in these spaces. And, um, you know, all these cases of like violence in the bars, outside bars. And it made me think, you know, that this is, this is itself a transformation from the Delhi that I grew up in, Mm -hmm. where uh, not that I'm saying that we did not have violence occurring then, but I can see that this has become so overt. You know, it is is the open symbolism of certain kind of masculinities connected with forms of consumption, to me, are really also very interesting, you know, to analyse. You know, and, and of course, you know, women are also out in these spaces and more women are going to clubs and bars. And, you know, I'm not saying this isn't just only happening in one side and women are becoming neoliberal subjects in themselves you know they are uh, adopting new forms of consumerism and they have aspirations that are connected to this and that needs to be looked at as well you know because the, these are these are all big transformations in the culture that are happening um a generation now younger than myself where uh you know their understanding of sex of consent of um rape of violence is itself I think would be very very interesting to study and needs Mm. to be looked at you know um so yes I think um but I I certainly think that the injunction to become a certain type of attractive successful male is is so connected to neoliberalism to consumerism and um, that is clear to me and then you know I think that is also something that really filters into other spaces smaller towns even villages Mm, uh, you know again I think there's almost like a you know one of the things about neoliberalism is the way in which modern technology allows these images to be disseminated through social media and tv and all these things so that it's not just restricted to Gurgaon or Mumbai or here or there but it becomes you know more widespread yeah yeah I mean I'm from a I'm from a very small town and um the the trend in my city Husharpur is that children teenagers 14 15 year olds get uh bikes motorbikes and these motor powered scooters and um, you get that and you go to tuition classes after school and that means that ever since I mean I I went to school in my city you'd see these uh, 14 15 year olds on these bikes these boys Mm. just you know riding and looking at girls in a very specific way sort of eyeing girls and um, you know calling out names and as a girl you know growing up in that environment I was I did not want to step out on the street you know I was And I was very sheltered in that, you know, I had my mom to drive me around. But, um, you know, not everyone has that privilege, of course. And it's just not a good, um, not a safe place for, for women. And where do you, you know, you have to walk on the road. Where do you go? And Absolutely. yeah, and a friend of mine said this thing. She said power uh, isn't just having money or having, you know, a lot of uh, accumulated family wealth. It's also, you know, in yeah. this context, someone, a boy on a motorbike, you know, yeah. <laughs> and um, who's able to make someone very uncomfortable, yeah. right? Just like that, that power to make a woman walk faster, to yeah. to move away from you, to to react through fear is itself a form of power, right? And that's interesting to think about. Yeah. Right? It's its own axis where you just, you you occupy the space and you, you make the woman have to leave the space, you know? Yeah. Um, that is, that's power. 
as well. And absolutely right. It's not just because you have more money. It's um, it has its own access, of, you know, uh, power around masculinity and the con- construction of masculinity. Um, and where do they get? Where do these boys? Where are they getting permission that yeah. that's okay? Yeah. It's it's really sad. I mean, uh, yeah, growing up in Delhi, it was the same thing. You know, we just felt so vulnerable always. And I don't think I ever stepped out onto the street without being harassed. I mean, I cannot remember when I could walk down to the corner shop or to the bus stop and not have someone make a remark or comment, you know, and I think this is, this is, I cannot imagine there's probably no woman who would have not experienced it. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, even now when I uh, step out and I'm just, and I see these kids, I mean, (laughs) I know that this kid is probably 15 and there are three of them sitting on one uh, motorbike and they're, you know, eyeing me and I'm like, I'm, probably you know I'm so much older than you and um it's these it's these kids just roaming around you know because they have nothing to do after school and it's just interesting how that interacts with you know this motorbike culture and how that's its own form of consumerism and um totally it's all very very interesting and how young they are you know that is a kind of also a very interesting question isn't it like I don't know when they mustered up the courage at what age to be able to sit there and talk to an older woman that way, you know, lying around. And I think that's kind of connected to this point about certain forms of symbolic violence becoming, being pleasurable. Like this is their entertainment, you know, then they can look at each other and laugh and get a big kick out of it, you know, and that's, well, that's sad. <laughs> but yeah. it's, it, you know, it cannot be disassociated or disconnected to this bigger discussion about gendered violence, I think. No, absolutely not. Um, and then, I mean, speaking about this, and, you know, we are two Indian women, I mean, uh, women from mm-hmm. India, and we're speaking about this and uh, we're mm-hmm. sharing our experiences. But at the same time, I've spoken to, I studied in the UK and I spoke to, you know, whenever I talk to people about, uh, violence in India it would come up and there would be this um, you know people would people knew that it was uh, quite widespread but then again the the reactions I got were quite um, elementary in a sense you know every man is a harasser or like Indian men suck like that kind of um, viewpoint right. and that is something right. I found extremely problematic as well and um, okay. I'm interested in how that ties in with the yeah. uh, uh, white feminist gaze as well on uh, gender violence in India? Well, you know, I mean, I think that the, the response has to go back to this question that rape is a historical universal phenomenon. It's not restricted to India or Arabic countries or whatever, but there is an old colonial gaze actually that has typified Indian or Muslim men, Arabic men, you know, as lascivious, as sex- having an you know, unhealthy sexual appetite, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. It's such an old colonial gaze that hasn't really gone away. I was really struck by that, for instance, in the context of Abu Ghraib, you know, where there was this idea that, you know, you you had to, because for, for the Arabic, for the Arab male, his sexuality is so much a matter of shame and they're so over-sexualized that actually sexual subjugation is the best way to to break them, you know. And I I just think mm. that we really need to be reminded of this 
when we have a discussion about sexual violence. It's very central to the project that I'm, uh, you know, conducting right now with with some researchers, which is to, to to really step away from these kinds of colonial imagery images. So when we talk of the white woman's gaze, the white or the Western gaze as such, which was so apparent after the 2012 yeah. rape in Delhi, where every single media outlet, you know, was talking about India has a problem with rape and India this and India that. But actually, you know, the rape statistics in the West are not at all anything to be proud of. You know, it, it's just the forms are probably different. So, yeah. yes, it's true. And I think it is important and matters to me that I can walk down the streets of Cambridge and not be leered at and harassed. But then, on the other hand, I know and I'm aware that women are facing unprecedented levels of domestic violence and abuse in this country mm. and that they're not believed, you know, and that we have a massive problem of sexual violence on campuses, for example, you know, at universities. And you know the me too i think the me too movement should should definitely silence any western feminist who wants to point to this as an indian problem you know yeah. because the revelations these were the tip of the iceberg with the kind of revelations of sexual assault in workplaces by powerful men manager men in managerial positions and men who have some kind of responsibility and authority over younger women is yeah. massive Absolutely massive. And the same problems of underreporting happen here in the West. And the statistics cannot be trusted for the same reasons, you know. Um, I think um, definitely, I mean, for me, there isn't, um, you know, this this juxtaposition between Western, for Western feminists, between the liberated Western woman and the third world female subject are are very problematic, you know, and they don't help us understand anything really they just perpetuate an old colonial metaphor that that needs to be um sort of dispensed with i think yeah you've quoted uh, chandra talpare mohanty in yeah. this article and how you know she said that this also leads to the creation of a unitary liberated this idea of a liberated western woman yeah. and how that's also super problematic um, very, very problematic, especially when you read the work of black feminists, you know, around sort of slavery and rape in, uh, you know, of black women. The fact that actually the subjugation of black women was conducted through rape and the idea that somehow then white feminists are liberated in that context is just appalling, you know. So, I mean, yes, I, I have... I certainly think this is not a way to have a discussion uh, yeah. with amongst feminists. Hmm. And um, this is a very broad question, but um, if you want to try answering it in any way, as someone who's investigating gendered violence in India, what do you think is the first stop towards tackling it, if there is one? Well, that is tricky because... You know, so many feminists are tempted to go down the route of, um, you know, strengthening the law and strengthening the uh, constraints. You know, we had this whole kind of death penalty discussion around rapists, which is so extremely counterproductive because it has no, you know, it doesn't bear any relationship to the discussion that we had earlier about the institutional conditions that enable rape. So I think the first step is really to having a, I think you need to 
change the lens, you know, and I think one of the things about tackling gender violence, everybody wants to have these immediate first steps, but actually we really need to think about the lens through which we even understand gender violence. So if we have a lens that says, well, the law and just higher level of penalty is going to shift the problem, then I think we're looking at it the wrong way. You know, and if you have a lens on the other hand that says, actually, you know, the gender violence is connected to other forms of gendered hierarchies, you know, such as the the sex selection, such Mm -hmm. as, you know, disparities in education, such as the caste system. And I know it sounds big and it can sound dispiriting, but it's so interconnected. How would we ever tackle it? But actually, Mm -hmm. I think we can have a much more productive discussion. And, you know, to that end, I think there is a junction between what scholars can do in a way I think personally I think we can help most towards this lens change but actually we really need to work with groups on the ground that are already doing this hard work so I'm, I personally don't think that I or my colleagues could ever suggest that this is the one way or two ways we can stop gendered violence but I think if we can contribute towards a discussion around the lens change we can work with a variety of different stakeholders and actors in in the field you know activists NGOs and even governmental actors if they actually want to have a productive discussion because that's the way you'll have social change but you know, at the end of the day, I don't think social change or change will come outside of mobilization. I think, you know, feminist mobilization around gendered violence, which seeks to draw these connections, makes these connections, is going to be the most powerful avenue for change. And then then change will follow. Then there will be changes in whatever needs to be done, whether it's sexual harassment reporting procedures, whether it's mm. changes in laws and policies, whatever else needs to, it has to be driven from the bottom up, I think. Mm. And looking at this as an academic and engaging with research on gendered violence, has this mm. had an emotional impact on you? Is it emotionally challenging? And how do you balance your emotional well-being with this work well it is it is very uh, you know emotionally challenging um i think that you know i you know in a sense it is sometimes important to to stop reading about mm. gendered violence i find i have to really step away get other sources of sustenance you know in my life without without which I don't think it would be possible to carry on doing this work and reading the testimonials and reading all the the the, the, the enormous number of um, kind of human rights reports and collecting all this evidence. Um, so absolutely. And I think for the field researchers who are going to be going into the field, we are very clear that they really need to have some kind of support available because mm-hmm. actually listening to testimonials, doing the interviews, being and experiencing that violence as they are in the field, uh, not a, notwithstanding the fact that many of us, you know, experience that anyway on the streets or in other sites or have experienced it, uh, but that in the context of the research, that is something that is going to be part and parcel of what they do is, is very, very difficult. It certainly makes this type of research very difficult and we need to be very careful that we really have proper training and support available for the researchers who are doing this work, Mm. for all of us actually doing this work. 
Yeah. And just finally before before I let you go, what are you working on at the moment? You've mentioned it briefly, but what are some of the future projects that we can expect from you? Well, we've just had a very large um funding application accepted. We are going to be funded by the ESRC about 1.8 million pounds to do this wow. research myself together with other co-investigators Nandini Gupta at Oxford, Sandeep Srivastava in Delhi at IEG and Kamila Naidu, Professor Naidu at University of Johannesburg and Dr. Lynn Osome at Makerere Institute. Um so the, the five of us are leading this project. I'm the principal investigator here from Cambridge. and we're going to employ a number of postdoctoral and other researchers to help with a very thorough kind of look at gender violence and putting it in its historical context in Delhi and Johannesburg so mm. it's a three year project that is starting this year this coming year in 2020 and um we will have a series of activities a lot of impact activities including artists and in residents at Johannesburg we want to write children's books and produce a documentary so there are a lot of really uh, very interesting and creative outputs um that will be coming out of the project but one of the things we really really hope to do is to engage with uh people working in the field and particularly with women themselves the women in these communities themselves really working with them here not just hearing their voices but actually working with them you know mm. on thinking about what next mm. so that's really the project the project will be comparing delhi and johannesburg so we also want to look at the um similarities and differences between these two cities as they undergo their own a near liberal transformation with their own histories you know south africa with its kind of post apartheid transformation and india with its own kind of transformation towards uh hindu nationalist uh domination mm. what that might mean as well so that's mm. the project that's the sort of major project now for the next few years that I'll be engaged in wow that sounds amazing and i can't wait to see what you find from that and um yeah thanks thank you thank you so much for talking to me and thank you for your time today um thank you for the work yeah. that you're doing it's so important and um yeah more power to you thank you Yeah, thanks for this podcast. It's a really great uh, initiative and I look forward to hearing it and hearing more of the other ones as well. Great. Thank you. That was Dr. Manali Desai and thank you for tuning in. If you have any feedback as ever, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or you can reach us on twitter we're at talk underscore research i would love to hear from you anything we can do better anything we're doing well or any suggestions and again anything we can do better and if you need there is a link to organizations that support victims and survivors so please check that out that's in the podcast description and we'll be back next sunday with another episode so see you then this is asmita and you're listening to talking research